0: Welcome to something we to wrestle, wrestle with. with it. Briggs Pritchard. Well, you know. <laughs> That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. <laughs> what a rib? No, you have me. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor, ninu, and no. I don't deal in rumor, ninu, and innuendo. And well, was well, he there? I was there. I, the I don't. Give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck killed you. you, Bruce. I love you. Give me a double cheeseburger. You double cheese. You know. Double mayo. Know, double
1: onion, mama. Pie. Hey, hey, it's you know, Conrad Thompson, place. and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With from Tokyo. I know that's not exactly what you expected to hear today. We we're calling an audible we had originally planned to do a Saturday night's main event watch along from Hulk Hogan and King Kong Monday all the way back in 1988. And then we put the poll up, and you guys were so fired up about Royal Rumble 99, I said, oh, we'll we'll just do that one next week instead. And then something tragic happened. We lost Mean Gene Okerlund. And you guys wanted some Mean Gene content today, and that's what we're going to bring to you. But unfortunately, uh, I'm in Tokyo, and Bruce is in Friendswood, Texas and he's going to be in Friendswood again this weekend with Eric Bischoff and half a dozen other, or maybe two dozen other, WWE Hall of Famers. you got to check them out at the Baybrook Mall, Fitterman Sports. It's Saturday, January 5th, so tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Friday, but Ted DiBiase, Bushwhacker Luke, Nasty Boys, Demolition, even our main man, Eric Bischoff. And rumor and innuendo, Bruce, is that Honky Tonk Man might be there. This might be the first time. Honky Talk Man and Eric Bischoff have been in the same place since Bischoff's been running him down over on 83 Weeks.
0: Well, it should be interesting, to say the least, and uh, we are all going to be there. It's a small place, so it should be an awful lot of fun and awful uh, explosive, to say the least.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, the reports. I'm sure social media will blow up on that, and hopefully uh, you're doing what I'm doing, and you're watching Wrestle Kingdom today. I know that uh, we've been promoting it here on Fight and I ran into Mike Weber at the uh, Tokyo Dome, and he is all excited about the show, and I'm sure the reviews that people are seeing right now tell the story. Uh, But our our story continues. You know, before we get into me, Gene, let's tell you where we're going to be coming soon. uh, January 19th, Colorado Springs. I can't believe we're finally making our way there, but I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, And then, uh, just a week later, we're going to be in San Diego at the world-famous Madhouse Comedy Club, That's an afternoon show. And then, of course, on Royal Rumble Sunday, we're in Phoenix at Stand Up Live. Been looking forward to that one for a long time. We'll put the band back together in March. We're probably going to drip out a couple of February shows. Stay tuned there. But March 1st, it'll be Bruce Pritchard, Eric Bischoff, and myself. Looking forward to that. In Connecticut, we've never been to Connecticut before. And this is at the Mohegan Sun. If you can't have fun there, you're dead. You can get tickets for all of these shows at brucepritchard.com. And don't forget the solo tour for Bruce Pritchard in Australia, also on sale now. He'll be there in late March, the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, which is uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. So you got to be on top of these live events, man. They're sneaking up on you. It's brucepritchard.com. And Bruce, one of the things I wanted to, uh, you know, do on this show is take maybe a little bit of a different approach because. Um, you know, sometimes I like to cross examine you and that's not really what today is going to be about. I just want to celebrate the life and times of being Gene Oakland. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is, Hey, we're going to cover the good, the bad, and the ugly with being Gene. There is no bad. There is no ugly. Yeah. I, I can't think of any ugly
0: with Gene.
1: Yeah. I-, I can't think of any bad, you know, obviously he
0: had some, some health
1: issues, but he's one of those rare guys. I never heard anybody say a bad word about.
0: No, it- You're not going to either, and Gene Okerlund was, he was a friend, he was a colleague, and it was educational to get to be around Gene all those years, and I thoroughly enjoyed every single second of it.
1: Well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Gene was born Eugene Arthur Okerlund on December nineteenth, 1942, in South Dakota, of all places, and uh, he grew up. He described himself as a semi-wrestling fan. He would watch it when it came on late night in the 50s. Uh, of course, he's watching AWA up there. And then eventually, when he goes to college, he uh, he goes to the University of Nebraska with a guy who would go on to be the Baron, Baron Von Raschke. Any good uh, early Mean Gene wrestling stories you can remember? Because it feels like back in that day, everybody had a favorite or a moment or a memory. I mean, even now, I guess, I can point to live events and be like, that's when I was a wrestling fan.
0: You know, I I guess back in, in the day during that time, especially in that area, it was all about Vern Gagne. It was all about the AWA. And growing up in that area, if you didn't know who Vern Gagne was, he was more popular than the Pope in many ways. So it was that was a big deal then. And that was, that was the guy that's who Gene grew up on.
1: You know, he didn't just jump right into the wrestling business though, which I think a lot of people assume that that was always the plan, but it really wasn't. He he graduates college and goes into radio, uh, which makes sense. I mean, he had one hell of a voice and he's winding up at KOIL in Omaha, Nebraska. Eventually moves up to Minneapolis and continues in radio has about a nine year run there. Uh, and he also starts eventually selling uh for a television station in Minneapolis. And television sales, that's uh that's not an easy sell, is it, Bruce?
0: No, it isn't, but at the same time, when you you are a salesman, okay? So you know a great yeah. salesman when you when you meet him. And Gene Okerlund was the epitome of salesmen. He was constantly selling, which made him such a great pitch man, and that's why he was such a good interviewer because he knew what points to hit, to get people interested in the product and make them get off their sofa and come down and see the live events.
1: Well, and so that's sort of how this all happened. You know, I feel like we've told a similar story on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff where he talked about how the announcer for the AWA was uh, arrested for DUI, couldn't make a shot, and then they asked the guy in ad sales. Uh, who had a good look, come hold this microphone. And that's how Eric Bischoff got into wrestling. And Mean Gene, oddly enough, has a somewhat similar story where uh, the AWA is doing a live show every Saturday night, and there's a guy named Marty O'Neill who's the announcer for the AWA. And one day, he's ill and can't come to work. So they asked Gene to come in and host the AWA that day. And Gene has said he didn't really know much about wrestling as far as what to call the moves or the holds. And Vern told him to just sit down and call what you see. And Gene said that's probably the best advice he'd ever gotten. The story of how this is really just a happy accident and me and Gene winds up in the wrestling business is incredible, is it not?
0: Yeah, it is. And it's funny because that story is so similar to a lot of the greats when you go back and you find out how they all began. I'll go back to Paul Bosch. When Paul Bosch first started his broadcasting career, he was listening to to the commentators and the commentators were calling the wrong holds and Paul started to tell him what the correct holds were and the guy just handed him a microphone. In this case, Gene was the voice, didn't know what the hell he was going to do because you feel that, okay, I need to know something about it. And Vern gave him the best advice that he could give him. Just call what you see. Call what's in front of you and describe the action. And you can either do it or you can't. One of the things I found
1: fascinating in my research is that Gene admitted that one of the things he really struggled with was trying to predict what was going to happen. And he felt like that was part of his job was to sort of anticipate the next major move or the next break in the action, whatever. But he says that the real key to his success was to figure out how to stop doing that and instead just call something once it happened Is that uh, something that you guys talked about a lot in in, in Vince McMahon's WWE?
0: That's the key to every great play-by-play guy. Don't don't anticipate. And that's the problem with commentators in the wrestling business that know the finish or know the storyline because they're trying to lead you. If all you have to do is call what's in front of you and call what's on your monitor at the time, then you're not going to screw up. If it doesn't happen, you don't call it. But if you make something happen that isn't there, it comes across as untrue. And that's the best advice anybody can ever give you.
1: No doubt about it. Um, What do you know of Vern's relationship with Gene? I mean, it does feel like, um, you know, we've heard various reports through the years about how Vern can be sort of bitter when when one of his guys that he really made a name moves on. And certainly that's going to be, the way things wind up for Vern and Gene, do you think that they reconciled or how would you categorize their relationship?
0: Well, they did reconcile over the years when Vern was inducted into the hall of fame and everything with the WWF at the time. I I know that they had reconciled there and they were friendly, but it's business. And sometimes you have to make a business decision and move on with Vern Gagne. You were either with him or against him. And I don't know that he, They certainly weren't friends at at the time, but they got over it, and you move on with your life. And Vern, from what I understand, could be difficult to work with, but he was a perfectionist, and you can't argue with the success that he had during the heyday.
1: Yeah, and and even back then, Gene was a bit of an entrepreneur. You know, Even when he was in the AWA, it wasn't his only gig. He was also doing an ad agency and continuing that salesmanship, and that salesmanship we know – was going to serve him well as wrestling fans because we're all familiar with the hotline plugs that he really made famous. And one of the things that before I even think about the hotline plugs, I always think about it, is Mean Gene in the back doing the stand-up interviews. And that's where he got the nickname Mean Gene when he was doing that in the AWA with Jesse Ventura. And Jesse is explaining to Gene that he was up all night partying with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And then he asked Gene if he knew who Tom Petty was. And allegedly, Gene said something like, he's a famous race car driver, right? He isn't. Confusing him with with Richard Petty. And immediately, Jesse says, that was mean, Gene. And what do you know? Mean Gene stuck. And I don't know that. Gene really loved the name, but it certainly served its purpose. I mean, you say Mean Gene, and people know who that is.
0: They, they certainly do, and it worked really well for Gene all those years. So I think that Jesse really did him a favor by giving him that moniker Mean Gene. And overall, when you look at the person that probably got that over, the credit has to go to Hulk Hogan because Hulk is the one that – that made it universal and mean, Gene, let me tell you something, brother. And when people do interviews and they start to go into whatever impersonation they want to do, it's will well, tell you something mean, Gene. It's so easy. It rolls off the tongue and it made a hell of a career for Gene Okerlund.
1: It's crazy. When you think about the amount of talent that rolled through the AWA, because, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, he worked with Ho- he being Mean Jean, pal. He worked with Hogan in the AWA. He worked with Bobby Heenan in the AWA. He worked with Jesse Ventura in the AWA. And then you think about all the other talent, you know. That I mean, Rick Flair learned how to wrestle in the AWA from Vern, and they learned. Uh, or he also taught uh, Ricky Steamboat. There's so many just phenomenal, all-time world-class talents who came through the AWA that eventually really made their lot in life somewhere else. Uh, but the two that I always associate with Gene, I don't know why this is, is Hulk Hogan and Bobby Heenan. Both of them meet in the AWA. Uh, how would you categorize uh, the Bobby Heenan and me and Gene relationship?
0: Well, they were first of all, they were business. They, they, they worked together. And... They were friends outside, outside of wrestling, uh, going all the way back to Minneapolis. Bobby and Gene were very close friends. And then in later years, they both lived outside of Tampa, Florida, and they were very close. Their wives were close. Their families were close. And it was a friendship just garnered over many years being in the same business and being able to share the same ups and downs of the wrestling business.
1: It's so crazy when you think about it, too, about just how long those guys' careers were. And you, you think about AWA, they're there at the same time, WWF, they're there at the same time, WCW, they're there at the same time. All but four years of their career are together. Is that not insane?
0: Yeah, it really, it's its crazy, especially in the wrestling business that you're able to have that that long of a run with the same people.
1: So let's get to, you know, why we all probably are listening to this and remember Mean Chain, it jumps to the WWF. And Gene said that until about mid-83, when Vince McMahon first came to him and told him about this vision that he had and talked to Gene about how cable TV was becoming a thing and how they could go national, Gene said that Vince never mentioned anything about being global, as the WWF would later go on to be, obviously. I mean, they make more money internationally than domestically these days, I'm sure, but One of the things that I've always found fascinating is sort of this old-school mentality that existed back then. Of course, now, with the benefit of hindsight, we know how it wound up. But Gene dismissed this idea when Vince first lays out the vision because he doesn't understand how this could possibly work logistically. And because he had a full-time gig doing the ad agency, he wasn't willing to – throw away his other business uh, in order to try to make a run at this opportunity with Vince. So Vince cuts a deal that allows Gene to work three days every three weeks. And then he got some urging from his old friends, Pat Patterson and Hulk Hogan, and he eventually made the jump. But obviously money played a major role in that decision as well. So not only could Vince offer him more money, But that's the the best schedule ever in the history of wrestling, is it not? Three days every three weeks?
0: Well, the idea behind it was they recorded television every three days. I mean, every three weeks. So during that time, that would be the time that Gene would cut all of the individual interviews with the talent for the individual markets for the next three weeks. Now, it was a grueling three days during that time that they eventually would have to take on the road and expand the number of days because the number of live events expanded. So as Gene's role expanded and the events expanded? The demand also came on him that he had to work a whole hell of a lot more, but working three days every three weeks is a hell of a hell of a proposition.
1: No doubt about it. And he jumps at the chance and he accepts that offer in December of 1983. And here's sort of what I was alluding to earlier the big sit down comes where Gene has to let the Ganyas know that he's leaving. And he's not just telling Vern Greg's there as well. And Greg is pretty fired up about it and says, how can you leave us now? We need you. We've taken care of you for 13 years. And allegedly Gene replied, I've taken care of you. And this guy comes to me with an offer that's substantially better. And I don't hire, hear any counter offers here. And allegedly you tensions run high and Greg said something like, well, if it's so damn good then take the job. So Gene did, and that was it. He was out. This conversation happened a lot in the AWA in this era when Vince was taken over, did it not?
0: Yeah, I imagine it did. I know that a lot of guys didn't want it. Didn't want to give Vern their notice because they didn't feel he deserved it. And they felt that Vern had kind of taken advantage over the years and he liked Bill Watts a lot of times. They weren't the most well liked guys to work for. Regardless, it was it was standard. Man, you give your notice and you, and you work out your notice on the other side. I think a lot of talent blamed Vince McMahon, saying that Vince paid him extra. Vince told him not to fulfill their dates. But in all my years knowing Vince McMahon, I've I've never heard him ever say to anybody, "Don't fulfill your dates" and and don't honor your obligations to the to the other end because he would expect it from them on the other side so i think that a lot of guys just use that as an excuse to jump ship and get out of there Uh, but gene was a businessman and gene did it the right way by going and sitting down with Vern and saying hey i'm gonna leave here's my notice
1: let's talk about the next time we're here uh, about Vern and Gene and, and Vince. It's 1984, and obviously the WWF is blowing up now. They're on track to, to make WrestleMania a phenomenon. Rock and Wrestling and MTV, I mean, it's really, really hitting. The toys are coming. It's been the vision is, is becoming reality. And during a visit to Minneapolis, Vince McMahon visits Me and Gene's ad agency. And using the phone on Jean's desk, makes an offer to Vern to buy out the AWA allegedly uh, for ten million dollars, which would be five hundred thousand dollars a year for five years to both uh, Vern and Greg, uh, which is not. I mean, which means he's not going to you know just front load all the money. Um, but he's offering a chance to collaborate not buy you out necessarily but we're going to work together and i'll give you some towns to run and i'll give you some exposure on national tv but you can work with me rather than against me and allegedly uh gene sees Vern blow up on the phone to the point that vince has to pull the receiver away from his head and he can hear Vern yelling through the headset uh, things like blow it out your ass and it'll be a cold day in hell before i ever do anything like that and If you're only your father knew what you were doing right now. I mean, lots of um, lots of resentment and contempt and people are not happy about the move that Vince is doing. Here's my question, though. When I read this, I wondered, why would he do that in front of Gene? Do you have an answer for that? I mean, you, you know, Vince better than anybody. Why would you make an offer like that in front of Gene to sort of. Uh, undercut any sort of hurt feelings or weird emotions or whatever that Gene may have about leaving a 13 year employer, or why, why make the call in front of Gene?
0: Well, first of all, you have a witness there, so you have a witness to him making an offer to buy him out and an offer to work with them and to collaborate. So, anything that Burn says or anybody else wants to come back and say that Vince did this or Vince did that and it was malicious on his part. He's got a witness right there that can say, no, you know what? He called the guy. He made an offer to him to work together and try and work this thing out. So that's why he's got someone to tell that story. When he finally
1: comes into the WWF, he starts as a commentator. Uh, He's actually doing color commentary and he's replacing Pat Patterson. That doesn't last very long. He realizes his shortcomings and then he starts doing the interviews and Before we get into, you know, the rest of the run there, I do want to talk about Pat Patterson as a color commentator, because that feels like that is in the book of bad ideas, especially if it's in English.
0: Well, no, it was good. God, he was better than Bruno and Bruno only said a couple of words, but it was a way it was actually colorful. And I think that it was Vince's way of entertaining himself sometimes to try and get Pat to pronounce certain things like Rio de Janeiro. That Pat just shortened to, Hey, it's a better teacher, Rio. Um, so it was entertaining, at least for Vince.
1: That, that's so fascinating to me. that This is a guy who is all about business, but every now and again, it's cool with making a silly decision just to have fun.
0: But it was also Pat Patterson who people, they were used to him and they were used to him talking. And he did give good insight for us listening to Pat. We like to make fun of it. But for a wrestling fan that is sitting there, they're listening to the first intercontinental champion, give his views. He's not doing color commentary like what you hear now. He's doing an analyst. Vince is throwing things to him every once in a while. And it's a different voice. But Pat had credibility in that role.
1: One of the things everybody's been talking about is the uh, August twenty sixth, 1984 is when we see, oh. in, in Minneapolis, by the way, uh, Mean Gene make his in-ring debut. He has his first match, he's teaming with Hulk Hogan to take on Mr. Fuji and George the Animal Steel, but what's memorable about this is not necessarily the match, but the series of vignettes that were done before the match. There was a scene where we see Gene sitting at his dining room table smoking a cigar, and uh, Hogan comes in and gets on him about smoking, and then he takes him into the kitchen and drinks a bunch of raw eggs, just cracks them open in a glass and chugs it down. Of course, Mean Gene wants nothing to do with that. And You see people running through a park, and you see them at the gym, just a series of classic vignettes that really are almost like, almost like a precursor for the way you guys use vignettes to introduce new characters. When I go back and I watch this, I think, boy, this was phase one before we had, you know, the Mr. Perfect vignettes or the Million Dollar Man vignettes. This was, you know, re- wrestling being presented in a different way, but in a way that made it much bigger. Fair to say?
0: It, it was also taking a a local storyline, which was Hulk and George the Animal Steel, including Gene in, it, in Minneapolis, but being able to do all of those vignettes on a national basis on All-American Wrestling and TNT that got that story out and made Gene a larger-than-life character as well. But if you, whatever you do, you go back and you want to look at anything classic Mean Gene Okerlund or classic early WWF, go back and watch these vignettes. They are some of the most entertaining things that you will do all week long guaranteed. It looks like the scenes like in the, in the kitchen and at the kitchen table were shot in a trailer, quite frankly. And they probably were uh, Noah Nelson Swigler back then, but, uh, it was enter- highly entertaining. and holds up to this day. It's just some really entertaining, fun stuff. Let's talk a little bit
1: about, um, the, uh, the idea of him being so closely associated with Hulk Hogan is it is it mostly because of these series of vignettes? Do you think?
0: No, I think that it's because you know Gene was the guy standing next to Hulk Hogan for all those years. Gene helped Hulk Hogan as much as Hulk helped Gene. He was the pitch man. He was the guy that was presenting, you know, Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania from the AWA, and then you know, seemingly came over with Hulk to the WWF. So it was a package in a lot of respects. They're just very identifiable with each other.
1: Of course, after the passing, everybody shared a lot of their memories on social media. Hulk Hogan wrote, the best partner I ever had. We never rehearsed or did anything scripted from a writer. Gene would just ask me, hey, big man, what do you want to do? And I would always answer, just follow you, brother. And it worked from 1980 to 2017. R.I.P., my brother, H.H. Uh, it is sort of weird that Mean Gene, because I think t- people really come down on two sides of this. Like, either they remember Mean Gene from the WWF with Hulk Hogan, or they remember Mean Gene from Ric Flair and the way he would yell Mean, by God, Gene, and all that. Um, h- how many guys had a career where really there's, you know, we've talked about this a lot with Hogan, the most over babyface, and then later the most over heel, just You know, drew major money on both sides, but Gene sort of did that—not necessarily as a babyface or heel—but in two territories where nobody else really did that to that degree, did they?
0: I would throw Bobby Heenan in there. I'd even throw Savage in there. But there were, you know, there were a few guys, but none to the extent I think that Gene Okerlund was able to define that role in every company that he ever was in, from AWA to WWF to WCW. I think Gene, Gene was the mold, man. Gene was what everybody aspired to be.
1: No, you're exactly right. And, and you know, I, I would challenge you on Macho Man. I, I think Macho Man had a much more significant run um, in the WWF than WCW. And I think you could even say that for Bobby Heenan. I think Bobby Heenan in the WWF was on top of this game by the time wcw rolled around it it just wasn't the same and maybe some of that is because we saw so much of them and gene's appearances were more sporadic and you know maybe, maybe less is more i don't know but it's just fascinating to me because depending on the age of my friend i know which main gene you know they if you're my age you remember the hulk hogan stuff but if you're 10 years younger It's all about the WCW years. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the WWF. Um, He's got lots of uh, famous interactions because this is during the the rock and wrestling era. So you've got shows where Mr. T is around as well. What did did, um, Gene think of the influence of the mainstream of professional wrestling? It feels like something he would have been a proponent for.
0: He enjoyed it. I know, I think that the most infamous was the Billy Martin vignettes that they shot out in San Diego, where Gene shows up to work with Billy Martin and, and Billy is sitting at the bar absolutely trashed. And Gene's trying to get something out of him. But Jean relished those moments. Jean relished taking the impossible and making something out of it. Um but that was probably his favorite going. I walk in and this guy's sitting at the bar hammered three sheets to the wind. I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this guy? Let's turn the goddamn camera on. Let's go. And that was Gene. It was, let's get it done. Let's go. I'll do it for him. So I I think that Gene kind of relished working with those, those folks. and, And he was again, that conduit to the other side.
1: I like that you said, let's get it done. Because that was the attitude that I think he took during WrestleMania. I didn't even know that since I started doing some research. Is this true? He sang the national anthem at WrestleMania 1? Yeah, like he the did. the first one? Sure as hell did. That's, un- that's unbelievable to me. You know, the, the rumor in innuendo was that they had a major name lined up, and he winds up, whoever that person is, wound up no-showing. And they're in a pinch, and Gene says, I'll do it. And he did. That, that's a little footnote in history that you know, I didn't know. I mean, I know you've told us before that Howard Finkel came up with the name WrestleMania, but the idea that me and Gene sang the national anthem at the first one somehow was an even bigger mind blower to me because I just never would have imagined Gene as a crooner.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely, man. Gene loved to sing. And was a, Gene was one of those guys at a party when they would uh, play piano that Gene would be right next to the piano player singing songs absolute classic man he, he did it at vince's christmas parties when the guy would sit down at the piano gene would be at the other end singing songs you'd be in a bar somewhere and they would have a piano and somebody would start to play and gene would it was absolutely great multi-talented
1: well let's uh let's skip forward here we've spent a lot of time talking about what happened before you knew gene and before you had met gene uh what was your impression of Gene before you met him? And we've talked about this before. You came to work for the company after WrestleMania three in 1987, but you had been seeing some of these vignettes that they were doing with Hulk Hogan and you had seen obviously his work in the AWA and now with the WWF in your like way back machine. What was the rap on Gene and Texas and in the Paul Bosch territory and- how was he regarded and thought of when you actually make the trip up there?
0: Well, I think Paul Bosch kind of looked at him, and it was it was funny because Paul would sit there with a notepad and write down some of the adjectives that Gene would use to describe the action and describe different things. How ridiculous is this? Um, so – I looked at Gene as an unbelievable pitch man, and I did those stand-up interviews in the Mid-South. So Gene was somebody that I looked to to try and steal from because he was regarded as the best. He, he, he wasn't just – he was the best. So you, I tried to steal things from him, little nuances that he did, and, and that's who you stole from. So he, I respected him. I, I didn't know him. I knew that he'd worked for Verm, but I didn't know him from Adam and i was kind of i was excited that was one of the people when you go up there that you want to meet and get to know
1: well you met a workhorse uh i think most people remember back in the day one of the things they did is they cut what i think people refer to as localized promos where it would be this friday night at the garden sting you're going down whatever uh and then they run that in all the different local markets, you know, whenever they have the syndicated shows here. Well, allegedly, um, one of the first places they really settled in on doing these big loops like this is in San Diego. Uh, and I, we've actually got a listener of the show here who was involved with bicycling the tapes back and forth. They shoot a lot of them out there. They had a spot they were comfortable in and knew how to who to call to get the tapes around, blah, blah, blah. He said once. Mean Gene said once. He did 141 localized promos the same day. Uh, it was one of these San Diego marathon shooting sessions. You figure 141 promos, roughly three minutes each. You're talking about over seven hours worth, <laughs> before breaks, before retakes, before you know setting up the the bit or planning or lunch. Or it's seven hours.
0: No, see, you make it sound like, like we're doing one of our shows. No, it, it's, it was Howard Finkel with the book and sheets of paper with the localized interviews, and it was Gene in a room full of talent. And Howard would say, all right, now we're doing uh, Wichita, Kansas on Monday, April 5th. Show, and here's the arena, here's who you're wrestling with, here's the card. They would tape the card up on the bottom of the camera And Howard would say, okay, look around the room and go, all right, we're going to do Ricky Steamboat. You're wrestling Jake the Snake Roberts. And Gene would look at the car and go, all right, Wichita, we're coming to you this Friday night. You're not going to want to miss this one. The Hulkster's going to be in town, and he's going to be taking on King Kong Bundy. And then from there, demolition, blah, 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 blah. And Ricky Steamboat, come on, join me, my friend. You're going to be taking on the Snake, Jake Roberts. Ricky would talk for however, however long he would talk. Gene would fill the rest of that, and they would go on to the next one. And that's how those damn things were done at that time. There was no writing. There was no, there was no scripts. It was Howard sitting there with his book and the list of towns with the syndicated markets saying, okay, this television shows, show airs on Saturday night, I mean on Saturday morning. The show was going to be on Saturday night. So this one you make reference to tonight or the week before. You're making reference to next week, next Saturday, right here. Um, And it was just told to him, and he would digest it and knock it out. That's how they did it. And you would do that. You would start about 8 o'clock in the morning, and you would go until about 10 o'clock at night. One right after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other.
1: Let's talk about um, the television show, All-American Wrestling. He was the host of that show, and they had a few different little skits on the show. Sometimes he would interact with staff members and get their opinions on what's going on in the WWF, and other times he'd be on the phone, or at least pretending to be on the phone with a famous celebrity, and then occasionally someone would stop by. You got any uh, stories about All-American Wrestling and some of these different shows?
0: You know, All-American Wrestling is what Vince started off with where he got all the tapes and where he really got to know all of the other talent in the different territories around the country because they would send their tapes and they wanted their guys to be on All-American Wrestling. So they would play tapes from Junkyard Dog and from Hulk Hogan and from Jimmy Snook and all these guys from all over different parts and then Vince would reach out and bring these guys in. But later on... And as Gene would always say, when the ratings started to tank, that's when Vince would hand it off. And uh, All-American Wrestling had kind of reached a plateau, and Vince handed it off to Gene. And Gene relished that idea. We would tape All-American Wrestling in the edit one. Before that, we did it at uh, in Baltimore at the studio there. But it was Gene standing in a room, and we would do three weeks at a time, He's standing in a room and do ins and outs of matches. And he would just ad lib it. Here's where we're going to, Gene. He would ad lib. But he wanted to have some creative freedom. And and Vince agreed to let Gene have one minute, 60 seconds per show. Gene, do whatever you want. And Gene liked to do these little skits on the phone where he would be calling someone. And you would only hear one side of the conversation. Like, well, hello, Bert. How you doing there? (laughs) Gene. Uh, Oakland. <laughs> yeah. Tell Lonnie I said hello. And he would have these conversations and, and whatever was topical in the news at the time. So that was Gene's one minute. We let him kind of do whatever he wanted. After a while, I had stopped being hands-on producing that show. And well, I let another producer take over that show. And I get a phone call one day from Vince you know, we had eight hours of television every single week, brand new programming every week, and I didn't watch every every single edition of every show that, that came out. Um, but on one of the versions of All-American Wrestling, he apparently did one where he was like, Yeah, how you doing there, George? Uh-huh. How's Barbara? All right. Yes, 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 the bush. And something like that. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was Barbara and Bush in the same bit. And the network went fucking ballistic. Absolutely ballistic that Gene, Gene Okerlund was allegedly talking about Barbara Bush's Bush is what they said and so on and so forth. And it was Gene being Jean, just doing his double entendre stuff that um, got in a little trouble with. That is hilarious. Of
1: all the things I thought you'd be talking about today, Barbara Bush's Bush is not on the list. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, uh, and this is something we get asked about a lot, the wrestling album. Uh, Rick Derringer uh, did a song, Rock and Roll, Hoochie Coo. And, uh, of course, I think most people know Derringer's most famous piece of wrestling business is Hulk Hogan's entrance theme, Real American. Uh, But Tutti Frutti, uh, it's on the wrestling album as well. Uh, Gene's a part of this. Uh, I know you weren't there for it, but you've probably got some fun stories that have trickled, trick, uh, trickled down the line over the years. Right.
0: Well, on the wrestling album, Gene did Tutti Frutti on Driver, which was the second album is Gene actually did rock and roll hoochie coo and Joel Watts, my friend, Joel Watts, who came up to WWF with me. Produced the video for that. And that's when I actually got to meet and work with Rick Derringer, which was one of the coolest things ever for a 24 year old kid to be sitting there with Rick Derringer and Rick Derringer playing guitar in slow motion. Um, Just the coolest shit. But that's being around Gene Okerlund and him doing that was just crazy because he's telling Derringer, what to do on different things, and it was just classic because here's again Rick Derringer is a rock and roll god. I don't care who you are, you can debate me all you want, but he was he is a rock and roll god, and it was really nice to see Okerlund collaborating with Derringer and Derringer actually having the time of day to speak to me. So that was my memory of the uh, Piledriver Wrestling album with Gene Okerlund.
1: Let's talk about the 1987 Slammy Awards. You were there uh, December 16th, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And Caesars Palace is a cool wrestling place. I didn't really think about that, but you guys did a WrestleMania there. I know there was Clash of Champions there. And even the uh, Slammy Awards, Caesars Palace, who knew? Uh, Gene and Jesse Ventura are the hosts for this. And uh, Gene is also the co-winner of the Best Head Award which Jay-Z Flair would certainly take issue with. That uh, title was shared with Bam Bam Bigelow. What do you remember about the Slammy Awards from 1987?
0: It was a week's worth of rehearsals. One week. Being in Caesars in Atlantic City and having to go through every painstaking second of that show every single day. The choreography with the dancers and the guys who had never danced before and, or really sang live before they did the, the album, you know, in a studio and shit. So they never actually sang these things before. And Vince wanted to do it all live and do it all real, no lip syncing and all that other good shit. Um, and Gene and Jesse were holding it all together. And there was a bit that I was responsible for, which was the fight with Hacksaw, Jim Duggan and Harley race. During the, the night, there was a, a gimmicked screen that went down on the stage that Harley and Duggan were supposed to go through. But they were only supposed to go through it the second on the second live show. The first live show, they were supposed to go around it. And the second live show, we were actually going to break through it. Well, we had rehearsed it a million times, and we were doing the first show. And Harley and Duggan are back there. They're waiting on the queue. And I give them the cue. And before I know it, they went right through the middle of the screen. And we only had one. Thank God for Gene Okerlund. Because Okerlund reacted. Okerlund, he, he did it live. He did it off the cuff. Jesse, if you go back and watch it, Jesse didn't know what the hell to do. Because he was waiting for him to come around the corner. And Oakland was the savior and Gene being on the spot like that was you put him out there live. And I never really had to worry about Gene being out there live because he would be able to cover whatever was thrown at him. And everybody came back yelling and screaming. But at the end of the day, yes, it was a fuck up. Um, they just misunderstood. They thought they were only going through once, which they were just the second show. Um, and it all worked out for the better because it was real.
1: Well, you guys um, changed your format of the event center sometime in 1988, and Gene is the host of that. Talk about the change that you did here and how Gene was feeling with this new role.
0: For years, what the what had been was the traditional – uh interview segments where Gene stood there with the talent and interviewed them for every single market. Uh it was time consuming, it was laborious, and it had become a in some ways a plaything for Howard Finkel where Howard would have guys do interviews that would never air. And when we started looking at the stockpile of everything that we had, just came up with a, a better way to do it. And I stole the idea from Mid-South, because that's how we had done them in Mid-South, except we did them with actual commentators. We would throw back and forth, and you would do a generic interview with wraparounds. So what it became was Gene being in a studio. Gene would do the market-specific stuff. Hey, Atlanta, we're going to be there this Tuesday night at the Omni Arena. Tickets are available here. Gene would do those wraparounds, and then he would throw to talent, and they would do the the same interview, and that interview would air in every market that that match was pertinent. It wouldn't be specific to Atlanta, but Gene's stuff would. So it required Gene coming to the studio and knocking all of that stuff out. And it was a lot it, to Gene. It felt like a lot more work because he had to come to Stanford. In reality, it was a lot less work for Gene, talent, editors, everybody. But it was just new and it was and it was different and then Vince kind of was looking at it like, Well, god damn it, if he lived here, it wouldn't be a problem. And that scared Gene to death. He did not want to live in Stanford. Who did? Well, that's a good point.
1: Okay. Uh let's talk about uh WrestleMania four. Uh this is your first WrestleMania. It's a big moment, it's a big time for you. And we've done a full show on it in the archives, but I feel like you have to have something you can share with us about Gene from that show.
0: Oh, Jesus. My first, my first WrestleMania, man. And I'm the producer of the show. I'm 25 years old. I'm a kid. I'd never produced a WrestleMania. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And Vince had told me, he says, make sure you have production meetings with all of the commentators and, and make sure that you get with everybody individually and have a production meeting with them and go over everything. I'm like, okay, yes, sir. I got it. So I'd had, uh, one with gorilla monsoon and those guys, which took about an hour and a half or so. And my next one was with Gene Okerlund. So Gene shows up, Gene comes to the room and he walks in and Lucy, what have we got today? I said, well, let's go over the show. He goes, do we really need to go over the show? I said, well, yeah, you need to know what you're doing. He goes, I'm going to be interviewing guys, right? I said, well, yes, sir. And he's like, got it. All right. See you there, kid. And walked out of the room. (laughs) That was my production meeting with Gene Okerlund. And he was gone before I realized what the fuck just happened. And everything worked out perfectly. He did interviews.
1: Let's talk about uh, Sean Mooney. Uh, Sean Mooney is another guy that I really think about this era of WWF. I mean, the, to me, it's me and Gene and Sean Mooney uh, from the announcer side. Sean tweeted out, A sad day in the world of entertainment and for the fans of the great at the Gene Okerlund. As I have long said, there was Gene Okerlund and then there was the rest of us. Rest well, my friend. Hashtag GOAT. I mean, everybody's saying that. Everybody, I mean, not just fans, not just people who were in the business, people who were, you know, his coworkers in that business. They all regard him as being the GOAT. What, how did Gene handle some of the younger talent? Because Gene's obviously the, uh, the elder statesman of the group. When a young guy like Sean Mooney comes in, how would Gene handle the, the young upstarts who were coming in?
0: With class, and Gene was the first one to lend a hand. He he wasn't fearful of his job. He wasn't one to, you know, like a lot of the old-timers, when new talent come in, they get very fearful and protective of their spot. Gene looked at Sean Mooney as an opportunity, more free time for Gene, and more time for Gene to do other things. So he was there to help Sean every way that he possibly could, and it was... From everything that I could tell outside looking in was a great relationship. And I relied on Gene to do that. I relied on Gene to, to help the younger talent get these guys through some of the shit. And he never failed. Let me ask you
1: this. You know, these days, uh, a lot of guys travel together. So this guy rides with that guy. That girl rides with that girl. Who was Gene riding with when, when you guys were making town? Did he have a traveling companion?
0: I think for, for the most of the time when when he did travel with somebody, it would probably be Bobby Heenan or, a lot of times he he would travel by himself. But he always would hang out with the production guys. Gene loved to hang out with the crew. He was just he was one of the boys, but he he was one of the crew too, and he he loved everybody you know behind the cameras. So that was that was Gene's click.
1: Let's talk a little bit about one of the more famous mean gene moments, SummerSlam 1989. You know where I'm going with this. I'll let you take it from here.
0: Oh boy. Well, we did pre-tapes and during one of the earlier pre-tapes, uh, that I think it was Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude in the middle of the pre-tape, the, the SummerSlam sign had been set up and it was like masking tape or something that the was holding the sign to the wall. And in the middle of the interview, the the damn sign fell. And Gene just turned around and was like, well, fuck it. And we cut tape, and obviously we did another one. We got the sign back, put up, and, and did another one. Well, we're live, and in the middle of the live show, the commentators throw back. It's Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura. Two things happened that night that, that really were the impetus of what i would use for announcer tryouts for many years after that in the opening shot when Kerwin was scanning the crowd doing the ballyhoo across the crowd a woman jumps in front of the crane and takes her top off and it made air it, it made air on the live show jesse and tony completely froze did not know what to say and they and they said nothing which was even worse then from there on this, the same thing happened. And and, and we're, Vince is screaming at him, you know, God damn it, cover it, cover it, say something. And Jesse kind of fiddle farted around and jumped on Oakley a little bit. But it was, a, it was a demonstration of, for me, that I used many years later, for announcers always to have something. React, even if it's wrong, react. Because it's live and we're looking for you to pull all this shit together. Um and then we played the right tape, but yeah, that was a complete, you know, one Gene's fuck up. It was a truck fuck up.
1: Still hilarious though. Well, one of the other things that's been floated around is a uh, a screen grab of when you guys were apparently just messing around with Main Gene and, and put something up there on the uh, the lower third where instead of just saying main Jean Oprahland, it said main quote-unquote, tiny dick Gene Okerlund. Uh, is that a Vince McMahonism? Who would have been having fun in the truck when I put tiny dick on the screen?
0: God, I did that air?
1: didn't air, but it was released in a, in a series of bloopers a few years ago. And, you know, that same blooper reel had me and Gene cracking everybody up because allegedly these interviews... Uh, while they, you know, were were long and people were probably tired through the end of them, Gene kept everybody laughing because he was trying to crack you up. And some of that stuff he would go really, really blue with, so it never made the air. <laughs> Do you remember any famous Gene stand-up moments like that where you thought, "Boy, this is great shit," but we can never show it?
0: Yeah, most uh, most every. Taping session that we had doing all American, they they became absolutely I- insane, and uh, I remember one year for Gene's birthday, we actually got him a, a stripogram. Uh, to come to the studio and they did a, a strip tease for him and Gene and thought it was something else. It's like, Oh, you got me a girl, thank you very much. It's like, No, Gene, you can't keep her. <laughs> and she's just have to sit there. And she's gonna strip over here. And I remember uh afterwards because he, he sat in the chair and, and she stripped for him probably about three or four feet away and, and she's like came over, you know, put her clothes back on and gave him a little kiss on the head and he looks at us all like That's it that's it. That's all I get. <laughs> and it was just, yeah, typical Gene. And we, yeah, most of his stuff was pretty blue, but it was a lot of fun. And, and when you're working all those crazy hours, um, you think about it, man. You've got 20 different script writers writing scripts for everything that everybody says on the air now. Gene did that shit off the top of his head where we would sit and look at a show and I would look, go, okay, here we're throwing to this. Got it. And he would just do it and make it entertaining. So it, it wasn't anything as a producer that I did to get it out of Gene. It was, I had a natural talent that I could depend on that would make shit entertaining. And, and that was Gene Okerlund.
1: Outstanding. A lot of those, uh, Interesting interviews are, uh, are floating around right now. There's been some posted with Ken Patera and some with uh, a lady wrestler, and I won't give you a spoiler there, but there's some fun stuff out there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Survivor Series 1990. We've covered this in the archives, but it's another famous Mean Gene moment where I feel bad for him a little bit. It's where you guys have him debut the fucking gobbledygooker, and then D- Gene dances with him in the ring. Uh what was what was Gene's takeaway from the fucking gobbledygooker?
0: I think Gene's takeaway was everybody else's takeaway, but Gene had had a front row seat for it of what the fuck is this? Um and when we rehearsed the damn thing, we didn't have, I don't think that we had the head on, the gobbledygooker, so you really couldn't understand him, and we kept doing it for him. So it was You know, Hector saying, gook,"er but we were the gobbledygooker, damn it, Um, and it came across even worse live, but Gene had fun with it, and he went out, and Vince wanted him to do some somersaults, and he's like, just can't do that, Vince. I I can't physically do it. If you want me to take a bump or, or do the somersault, I'll never get up, and I think he did one or two, but it was absolutely horrifying, and Gene embodied that moment so much with his reaction to it, because it was a, what the fuck am I looking at? And you felt it all over him. Ah, It's
1: amazing. So one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is the ultimate warrior. You're never short on opinions there. And Gina said the ultimate warrior was the most impossible guy for him to work with on interviews. And you were just sort of describing how Gene made it a breeze for everybody, and if they could do it, he would do it for them. But when it came to the Ultimate Warrior, it was like we've heard this story before. Any interesting, mean Gene, Ultimate Warrior stories you can share?
0: No, Gene just didn't want to work with him because there was nothing for Gene to do. And as soon as Gene would start to do his job, whether it was selling the well, event or selling the local venue or whatever warrior would come in "Ah, um and gene would hold try to hold the microphone and he would walk around behind him and gene would try and wrap it up and warrior would just keep going where gene finally said what the fuck am i doing here just let him let him do his shit um It's ridiculous for me to, to, to stand here and do this. So there was a frustration there, but that's the only guy, you know, Gene looked at it as a challenge on some people to try and get interviews out of them and put words in their mouth and make it good. And warriors just was the impossible. Almost.
1: Give me an example
0: of of a guy like that. Uh, a guy like nails. Sometimes a guy like Greg Valentine could be challenging. Ricky steamboat was not the greatest promo in the world. So, right. Dino Bravo, Frenchie Martin, some of those guys. You know, it was painful to try and get interviews out of them, but you had you had to get something with them. And Gene would put the words in their mouth and make it entertaining. Mister Fuji, not always that easy, boy son.
1: You know, we've heard through the years, especially back in the day, that when you're the champ, Vince wants to talk to you all the time. You know, you go from. You know Vince is there, but you don't have a ton of interaction with him. Maybe you have T V here or there, or whatever. So when you're the champ, you have a lot more communication with Vince. And I'm sure Vince feels that way because or does that because this is really sort of the face of the company. When you think about the amount of T V time and the relationship with the viewer, I Mean Gene Okerlund was also sort of a face for the company. What was his relationship like with Vince once they really got up and going?
0: Oh, great. I mean, really and truly great. Vince trusted Gene, so just as I stated before, you, you could give Gene something and feel confident that he was going to deliver. So that that relationship was one of trust, and they liked each other. They had a good time together. They, they would go out and party together. Um, it was a mutual respect and a genuine. They genuinely liked each other, so that helped. Uh, But most importantly, I think that there was respect and trust on both sides, that Vince trusted Gene and trusted his judgment that whatever he was going to do was going to be the right thing.
1: Well, and the right thing is to take care of your money and be a good steward with your money. And, Bruce, you've got a tip on how some of our listeners can do that, right?
0: Hell, yeah, because Robinhood, it's an investing app. And it lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, cryptos, all commission-free. So even if you're a stock market newcomer, you can invest for the first time with true confidence, man. It is so easy. When you go to their site, it's easy to navigate. It's easy to get stocks. Like I said, even if it is your first time. Now other brokerages charge up to $10 for every every single trade. Robinhood does not charge commission fees, which means you can trade stocks and you keep all your profits. With a clear design and easy to understand charts and market data, Robinhood lets you place a trade on your smartphone in just four simple taps. I've done it. I have the app installed on my phone. I check it every single day. As a matter of fact before we got on today to tape I actually did a little uh, stock buying myself over on Robinhood. And right now Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio not your portfolio. And all you got to do is sign up at wrestle.robinhood.com That's Russell Wrestle, W-R-E-S-T-L-E dot Robinhood dot com to get started with Robinhood. Do it today and start saving with Robinhood.
1: Vince wrote about Gene's passing. It was impossible not to crack a smile whenever me and Gene Oakland entered a room. He was the voice behind so many of WWE's most iconic and entertaining moments, and the WWE family will miss him immensely. And I think one of those famous moments that everybody remembers, and I know you weren't there, Royal Rumble, 1992, Ric Flair's cutting a hell of a promo (laughs) with a tear in my eye. It's a big moment. The NWA World's champion, finally, the WWF champion. People have waited for this for a long time, and what would happen if Ric Flair went to the WWF? Well, he's here. And for the first time ever, the winner of the Royal Rumble becomes champion, and it's the Nature Boy. And in the middle of all that, Put that cigarette out. And we still get questions about this literally every week. I know you weren't there. What do you remember about it? I'm sure you've talked about it and discussed it with somebody at some point.
0: Yeah, discuss it with you when you showed it to me for the first time a couple years ago. And I I laughed my ass off because it's in the moment live and there is no way to go back and edit that. It lives forever. It's one of those classic moments. So all I can imagine is, is Pat Patterson or Jack Lanza being backstage at the time and smoking a cigarette or maybe one of the crew guys, one of the extras on the crew, sitting there having a, having a cigarette and Gene catching it out of the corner of his eye. I don't know what happened, but that's probably probably what took place at that time.
1: What do you remember about the, uh, the skits he did with the Bushwhackers? I think Tony Giovanni even may have produced those.
0: No, I produced, I produced the ones, the original ones, and it was some of the most fun because Vince had this vision for the Bushwhackers and, and most of it involved eating and getting really messy so everything that we did, Vince wanted the bushwhackers to get Gene messy as well. So it was a lot of fun, kind of going around Stanford to different locations and, and allowing the bushwhackers to bushwhack whatever was in their path. And after a while, Gene had fun with it. Gene just didn't like Gene didn't like getting messed up, and especially didn't like all the sardines and crap. But that was that was a shitload of fun. And after a while, Gene started contributing to that. We did stuff with them. On their initial vignettes, and then we did stuff with them uh, at Bush Gardens, where we had them kind of going through the the animal kingdom and different things like that that Oakland was a part of. But you could put Gene in any situation, and he would make it work.
1: Let's talk about when he couldn't make it work anymore. Uh, his final appearance with the WWF is on Superstars, September eighteenth, nineteen 1993. And Gene has gone on record as saying his contract expired and he simply wasn't offered a new one. And he said he probably could have sat down with Vince and came to some sort of deal. But his agent had already been talking to WCW, so he decided to go there. This is happening at a time when the business is definitely on the downswing. You know, everybody knows the tough times that are ahead for 94 and 95. And here at the end of 93, one of the guys who's most closely associated with your brand, his contract expires. You're there at the time. Was this just a business decision and he couldn't afford to keep Gene or why was his contract not renewed?
0: It's exactly what it was. If Gene, if we, Gene was going to remain with us, it was going to involve a cut and pay and probably a reduction in, in a lot of his workload as well, but it was definitely going to involve a, a reduction in his pay and Vince didn't want to stand in his way. And didn't want to insult him either. So I think it was just a mutual parting of the ways for business at the time.
1: How did, um, how did Vince take that? Was it just very matter-of-fact, we can't afford him, so he's got to go? Or is there some sort of, God damn it, we got to find a way to keep Gene?
0: I've never heard Vince. that there, there, there never really was. i it was it was just strictly business his heart I think his heart hurt a little bit but he he moved on in in business he just moves on but I think that if the after all was said and done I, I think it just hurt a little bit to see him go but there was nothing could there was nothing we could do to keep him because he, he wasn't yep. going to take a, redu- a reduction in pay and it was a better deal for him to go to WCW
1: but here's my question, I guess. I, I sort of had an idea the way you were going to answer that before you did, but why not even just offer? I mean, what's wrong with just being honest and saying, "Gene, we've did. had
0: a lot he of great." Did. Okay, okay. He did. And, ga- um, and gave and gave he... him the blessing to to go and look for something else.
1: Gene mentioned that when he left, he gave Vince a hug in his office. How does, how does Vince process that, do you think, when you've got a guy who's been with you for 10 years, and he was with you when you built this company to just monumental heights and just made more money than you could ever imagine for yourself and your family and all the families that are associated with your brand. But now, well, the business has seen better days, and that guy's leaving. And this is at a time when you know, Hulk Hogan's left, and we you know the Macho Man departure is coming the next year. Guys who are really closely associated with the brand, Bobby Heenan, they're they're out. But Mean Gene was always there. You know, when Hulk Hogan's gone to make a movie, Gene's still here. Chat me up. Does Vince just compartmentalize all of this, and is that how he's able to just sort of keep it moving?
0: Exactly. You, you just have you just have to keep moving. If you stop, then you're going to get swallowed up. So you keep moving. You wish them well, and you move on. It's but but at the same time, it's a family because you spend so many hours together. You work so hard together. You can't help but have feelings and 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 become close with people. So that part is hard. But you have to put on the business hat and just keep moving forward. What was the
1: reaction internally, you know, like amongst the boys when they see that a guy who's been here so long, like Gene, is leaving? Does that create a state of panic for any of the guys?
0: I wouldn't say panic, sadness, yes. And I think that from from my vantage point, I, I definitely know from the production guys at the studio, they were really sad. They, they were upset that... Gene left because he was one of the boys. He was one of the crew and he was someone that always hung out with him. We always had a really good time together. Um, so there's a, there's just sorrow. I mean, it, it's just genuine sadness when someone that you love is, is leaving you.
1: i I've, I've done. Um, you know, we've done a bunch of these shows where we talk about guys who sort of fall out of favor with Vince for whatever reason. And that's really what this show is, I guess it's just, peering into the mind of a madman, the one that created the WWF or what, you know, however we want to categorize what we're doing on the show. But w- one of the things I've always been fascinated with is how Vince can really process all of this. And something that didn't come to light until I was doing research for the show this week on my flight over is his last couple of years in the WWF, he wasn't on speaking terms with Vince. I mean, that's direct from Gene that, he wasn't on the best speaking terms with Vince. Was there some sort of falling out that maybe we haven't ever really discussed, or did Vince, was this, the stress and pressure of the business just getting to Vince at that point?
0: No, and it was, I don't know that Jean may have characterized it that way, but Gene didn't have any interaction with Vince because Gene was doing things at the studio. Gene wasn't on the road with us all the time at that point. Um, he would come in every once in a while, and he just didn't have that interaction with Vince that he used to have. So, th- do you
1: think that that do you think do you think that that is a move that Vince makes preemptively when he knows he's going to have to sever the relationship?
0: No, it just was. Like, it was. It was just simply a. a, a The way that we were doing business at the time and so much of what we had done on the road, so much of what Vince used to be involved with, he was no longer involved with. And a lot of that went over to the television production side. And what we were doing is like we would write TV, we would go and produce it. And then we were pretty much hands off on a lot of it from the production end of things. And that was Kevin Dunn and his group. Gene was mainly working with Kevin and the guys on that end of things. He he wasn't working with us on the front end of it. Gene was more on the back end of it. So the relationship and the – just the interaction, not relationship, but the interaction with Vince was no longer there because Vince wasn't producing that stuff. Where in the beginning he did. Right. Let's talk about uh... –
1: him jumping ship here It happens november 6 1993 is when we first see him pop up on saturday night so not a ton of separation does vince or anybody in the company feel some sort of tinge of i don't know maybe ownership's not the right word but hey he's supposed to be our guy he shouldn't be there
0: it stings it's always going to sting Especially someone who is as notable as Gene Okerlund, because he was the guy that was on on everything with us. Saturday Night's main event, everything we did, it was Gene Okerlund. So, yeah, it stung. But again, it, it you can't can't dwell on it.
1: Meltzer wrote about Gene's leaving, of course, and he said Gene Okerlund, who came along with Hulk Hogan or David Schultz on the first Vince McMahon quote unquote talent raid of the AWA in late '83 appears to be severing ties with the group after nearly 10 years of on-again, off-again employment. Uh, Eventually, he would say, no other details are available other than word reaching us that Oakland was unhappy with the new deal offered by the WWF, which may have included having him move to Connecticut full-time. His WCW deal was reportedly for $250,000 per year, plus 35% of the 900 number. And allegedly, that's true. I've actually picked uh eric bischoff's brain about the hotline business on 83 weeks and he said that yeah the rumor in innuendo that gene was a partner on the hotline is accurate it was found money for wcw there was almost no revenue or traction there before so if gene could grow it then gene deserved to participate and he did a great job at it uh allegedly up to half a million dollars a year that that thing would generate just from people uh, like the listeners to this show, myself included, who would call in and want to hear what Mark Madden or Mean Gene or Bobby Heenan or whoever was saying. Um, 250 a year, obviously that's a lot higher than what the WBF was offering. Do you believe that the the move was something that was discussed there in 93 on that, that contract offer that you said that Vince did make at a reduced rate, or is that Meltzer freestyling because he knew it was a hot button for
0: Gene? Well, I, I don't I don't understand the question. Was what
1: moving like do you think that part of the stip, one of the stipulations in this contract that you said vince offered him that ultimately he didn't take no. do you think that moving to connecticut was part of that
0: no um at that time at that time i i don't believe it was and i think that more than anything it was if we were going to do something we would have to do it at a reduced rate than what you're currently making, and. It, Gene wasn't interested in that, and he had the other offer out there, and Vince was going to stand in his way of the other offer. Uh, did
1: you stay in touch with Gene when he went to WCW?
0: I did not. I saw him a few times, uh, but it wasn't something that. No, we didn't. We didn't stay in touch. I know that there were different overtures over the years to folks in the production company, uh, production company, and the production side of things to come back. But, uh, no, I personally didn't stay in, in touch with Gene. The next, the next time that I had any real interaction with him was at WrestleMania in Houston for the Gimmick Battle Royal.
1: Well, let's talk about that. WrestleMania 17, 2001. He's going to do commentary with his longtime close personal friend, Mr. Bobby the Brand Heenan. And the Gimmick Battle Royal, you're involved. Uh, WCW has only been down for uh, a little while. How
0: does this come to be? the The whole concept behind the the damn gimmick battle royal was going back and getting every gimmick that there was, you know, putting them in this one one battle royal. Then it became, how do we make it even more special? I believe it was, it might have been Kevin Dunn's idea. To do we want to go back? God wouldn't. First of all, you think wouldn't it be great to have Gorilla Monsoon? back here to call this thing. Well, through the years as I had mentioned Gene had made overtures about wanting to come back. Kevin said Gene's available. Gene would be perfect for this. Well, who else would be perfect for it is Bobby the Brain Heenan. So Kevin reached out to both of them and the deal was made. They came in and that opened the door for them to come back and kind of come back into the family and do some things with uh, at the time, what the hell was it? Uh, WWF 24-7? You know, they That's had right. That, that thing on, on cable, and so there were some new programming that they could contribute to, and the rest, as I say, is history. Gene returned.
1: Yeah, so not only did he do the classics on demand, but the uh, Madison Square Garden classics for the MSG Network, and um, he did a lot of stuff for the vintage collection in 2008. This is Pre network, but they're certainly laying the groundwork. The legends of the round table and things like that all are on the network now. And he's got a big role in a lot of those. He finally gets into the Hall of Fame, inducted by his longtime close personal friend, the immortal Hulk Hogan, in April of 2006. And during his acceptance speech, he said that uh, he wanted to uh, steal a line from Bob Knight. And be buried face down upon his death so his critics could kiss his ass, which I thought was
0: tremendous. And that's classic Oakland.
1: He also managed to uh, go ahead and induct uh, his other longtime close personal friend, Mr. Howard Finkel, into the Hall of Fame in 2009. And there was a series of old school promos that we saw in November of 2010 where they did like an old school episode of Raw and they had Gene in full nostalgia. Uh, interviewing guys like John Cena and Randy Orton. And that sort of kick-started a, uh, a new movement to sell, like, nostalgia versions of the WWF logo. Of course, they couldn't call it WWF, so they just chopped the, the F off. But they got the two Ws in there and really doubled down on nostalgia. And I know you weren't there for that, but there's nobody better for that spot than Mean Gene, right?
0: Absolutely. And I'm going to go back because you would asked me earlier about people that Mean Gene traveled with. In his early days of traveling in the company, I, I totally am remiss, if I don't mention this, it was with Howard Finkel. And Howard and Gene traveled up and down the highways and the byways every day, and that is what Gene uh, says contributed to his drinking and growing old a lot faster than he absolutely should have, was traveling with Howard Finkel all those years. But that they were traveling partners early on when they were doing the individual Localized interviews every day in a different market.
1: Gene would pop up sporadically. WrestleMania twenty seven in a segment with The Rock and Pee Wee Herman. Um, SmackDown in April of twenty twelve. Uh, another episode in December of twenty twelve. This time for Raw, where they're doing a Slammy Match of the Year award. Um, he appeared at May Young's ninetieth birthday party in two thousand thirteen. He did the old, um, old school rod 2014, where they did like a wrestling hotline spoof. Uh, he injected Mr. T into the hall of fame in 2014. And then maybe the most recent thing that we all remember about Gene, uh, was legends house, which is available on the network. And I don't think they'll probably do another one, but man, it was super fun to sort of see these guys in their element. And I had, a, by the time that show aired, I had met Gene, and hung out with Gene a few times through Rick. And boy, that show really captured who me and Gene really was. Um, he would, I think most people talk about this a lot, but he may or may not have enjoyed uh, alcohol quite a bit and um, may or may not have had some kidney complications. And he and Rick would talk about how, uh, after Nitro, they would have to head to the bar and have about 18 clear ones, Conrad. Uh, and I don't know why, but that cracked me up. But Gene's drinking was legendary. Uh, any good Mean Gene drinking stories you can share?
0: Wow, that I can share. See, that? You know, I saw that caveat in there. I think that one of the funniest was when we were at a brand-new hotel that we were trying out in Sanford, Connecticut, a really nice high-end hotel that for some reason was giving us these incredibly great rates. After a particular evening out with Gene, Gene tried to hug a several thousand dollar vase or vase, as you like to say. Um, And it came tumbling down with Gene in his, in his state of maybe having one or two too many uh, vodka martinis. But, that was few and far between Gene liked to have a, have a drink or two. And and we had a lot of fun out in the bars and and what have you, but he was always a blast. And and going back to that hotel, they immediately took that rate away from us and asked us to please not book anything in their hotel going forward after that night. Um, but he, he was a lot of fun, man. Gene, Gene was an awful lot of fun.
1: One of the things he, uh, it's probably not him, but somebody on his behalf is he tried to get over the phrase, Holy balls on Twitter. Was that, was that a little genism that maybe I didn't ever hear?
0: Uh, I've never heard that.
1: <laughs> well, i tell you, it caught me by surprise earlier this year because I saw Gene in a mountain Dew kickstart commercial with Kevin Hart, who I believe in the commercial is trying to impersonate Randy Savage and I think the last time we saw him on WWE TV was in January, where he was on the 25th anniversary episode of Raw, and he's interviewing AJ Styles. Um, That was probably your last time or next to last time seeing Gene in real life, right? I know you saw him at the 25th anniversary of Raw in New York. We saw him there, and then we saw him in uh, Winston-Salem at WrestleCade. Uh, Any final lasting memories of gene you want to share with us about your last few visits with him
0: you know I, I remember going back to the 25th anniversary of raw i remember that evening when gene was getting ready to go out and, and talking to him and him just saying was, you know wow they've got so many riders and so many people running around remember how we used to do it And we kind of chuckled you know reminisced a little bit and then he looks at me he says bruce I don't know any of these guys. I need them to write it down for me now. And they're telling me, Gene, you got it. I don't know who the hell I'm talking to. Um, and that was typical Gene. And then he pulled it off like the champ that he is. The last time that I saw him was this, this past November in Winston Salem. And I'm, you know, the last thing that I, I, I did was kiss him on the forehead and said, I love you, Gene, and I'll see you later. And I, had I known, you know, it was the last time I was going to see him. But uh, I'm glad I am glad I got to tell him that. And we, we were sitting there at the bar when he was having dinner before we went to go do our show. And I invited him to the show, and he was tired. And I uh, just got up, kissed him on the forehead, and told him I loved him.
1: Well, let's um, strap things up here. Unfortunately, we lost Mean Jean on January 2nd, earlier this week. Uh, he survived by his wife for 54 years and two sons, Todd and Tor, three grandchildren. Todd is a professional hockey player with the New York Islanders. Um, obviously, a true legend and an icon in the wrestling business, and lots of people throw those words around, but uh, they're never more deserving than with Mean Jean. What do you think Gene's legacy is going to be?
0: Well, it isn't going to be holy balls. No. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I will always see Gene hold the microphone with that other hand up in the air. And and I will always picture him standing next to Hulk Hogan and getting Hulkamania over to the level that it got. Uh, I mean, Gene Okerlund, as, as I've said, he, he, was, he was the best and he's what everyone aspired to be.
1: Let's, um, let's let you guys ask some questions. We took to social media and said, hey, call an audible. we are going to be covering and Gene this week. Do you have a question about and Gene? If so, just hit us right here. Uh, Catherine wants to know, who did Gene love working with and who were his least favorites
0: to work with? By far, uh, Hulk Hogan was probably his favorite. By a long shot, his least favorite uh, was probably Warrior and Savage.
1: Savage. Now why savage?
0: Uh, just because Randy could be Randy sometimes and be a little off-putting and just Randy could be Randy could be intense sometimes. And Gene liked to have fun. And Randy, Randy wasn't in the mood to have fun. It was what it was, but they got along. I'm just saying, as far as working with them and being predictable and unpredictable, Tilo
1: Brown, not D-Lo, this is Once well, So is there any talent that Gene had heat with backstage seemed like he was pretty well-liked across the board. Did anybody really not like Gene?
0: Uh, if they if they did, I never knew about it. No, I think Gene was really genuinely liked by everybody.
1: R.J. Sargent wants to know your best memory of being on the road with Gene. He sort of told the drinking story earlier. You got any good ribs that Gene either had played on him or played on other guys?
0: God, not off the top of my head. You know, Gene, Gene was one of those guys always had a – always like to have a good time, but Gene was the one that would break the tension, and Gene was the one that kept everybody laughing. When it was it was late at night and you still had two shows to go, Gene was busting everybody's balls, kind of ribbing on the square, but he was, God, man, he was just a pro. He could get you through it.
1: Uh, Darrell wants to know, what's the best mean Gene moment they got left on the cutting room floor?
0: I think that if you went back and took all the jeans, fuck this, um, you would have, you'd have a pretty good long reel. The, the best stuff was the things when he would just completely go off the rails with his one-minute bits, and, and we'd have to say, God, you know, no, we can't go there, you can't do that. Uh, but, a, but a lot of it was just some of the blue humor that he would do in the confines of the studio uh, for all-American ins and outs.
1: Uh, This is from Rand. Did any of the boys intentionally try to make Gene crack up during their promos? Uh, We've seen a lot of this where the guys are trying to really make the other ones laugh. And I think some people were commentating on a press conference in wrestling that recently happened where it looked like the guys were trying to make the other ones laugh. Do you remember anybody who always made it their mission to get Gene to crack or vice versa?
0: I think Piper always used to kind of pride himself in seeing if he could get him to break character a little bit. Roddy was definitely good at that.
1: Donnie wants to know, was there ever any real life heat between Gene and Bobby Heenan? They always seem to be taking pot shots at each other on the air. So I always wondered if they really didn't like each other or if they're just two friends joking around.
0: They were the very best of friends inside and outside of the ring. That's what made it so good.
1: That's what's so fun to me is I get messages all the time, listeners to this show who think that you and I just legitimately hate each other. Uh, To the point where when we were on vacation recently, uh, I ran into a listener who said, uh, oh, my God, what the hell are you doing here? I said, I'm just on vacation. And he's like, you go on vacation? I don't know why that made me laugh. (laughs) And and then he said, "Uh, "Who are you here with? And I was almost embarrassed to say, fucking Bruce. (laughs) People don't believe that you and I are friends in their life, So that, that question stuck out to me. Uh, Brandon wants to know, in your opinion, Bruce, who had better chemistry with Gene: Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, or Randy Savage? I don't think Randy's in the conversation. Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, really? Better than Rick even? Yes. Okay. Um, John wants to know, did the WWF ever have a problem with Gene's 900 uh, rumors line when he was on the WCW shows, where it seemed that he was far too often applying rumor and innuendo about WWF stars?
0: Um, yeah, you know, I think that there were times that we were miffed at some of the things that were reported, but again, that was, man, we're in the middle of the war and we were lobbing just as many back the other way as they were our way.
1: Uh, Kenny wants to know, did Mean Gene ever appear in Houston during the brief time that WWF and Paul Bosch worked together in the summer of 87?
0: Uh, his appearances were through videotape when he would Interview Nick Bockwinkle, who was the AWA world champion, and Bobby Heenan when they would come down and do have matches in Houston. So Gene was in that way he appeared, but not live.
1: Jason wants to know, what was Mean Gene's finest work, and why was it All-American Wrestling with the Brain?
0: You know, I think that Gene's finest work was his stand-up interviews and his his stuff promoting the towns. To me, that is, that's Gene Okerlund. That's what he was best at. <laughs>
1: Nick wants to know how many uh, or who were Gene's best friends in the WWF. You've told us Finkel, you've told us Bobby Heenan. Is there another name?
0: I think uh, I think Hogan. Okay.
1: Um,
0: and that that pretty much covers it as far as his very best friends that he was that he was really close with. Now, t- Randy t- wants t- to know. T- none, your- I'd have to throw him in there. Randy
1: wants to know your your favorite personal moment or memory with Gene so not necessarily something that was on the air just something between the two of you
0: well I'll tell you what it was actually something that was on the air because it was we did a special for USA Network and the the last line of the show Vincent had wanted the line to be that uh, Sergeant Slaughter was the greatest natural leader since the the great General Saddam Hussein and Okerlund was like, fuck you, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be out there when somebody does it. Gene didn't want to be a part of that angle in any way, shape, or form. So Gene and I did it, and we were we were doing it, and we had like one take. I don't think it was live, but it may have been. But it was the very last segment of the show, the very last bit of the show. And in, as Brother Love, I did it with Gene, and Gene knew exactly where I was going. And he was like basically you son of a bitch you got me and i got the line and right afterwards that's that was his line Goes, son of a bitch you got me goes thank god we weren't out there um but i did it because it was backstage gene was just that was one that he was fearful of the whole angle with slaughter and everything i enjoyed working with gene
1: well let's uh let's keep it moving here we've got tons of fun questions here tom wants to know what was the best advice or lesson that Bruce learned from me and Gene?
0: Wow. Uh, get it done. Do what you have to do to get it done. It, it, when the world's crumbling all around you, there's, there's shit to be done. Get it done. And that was something that I learned. When, I would panic sometimes it, when I got there early on. I didn't know what to do because of all the different personalities around me. So I would I would start to try to please everybody. And Gene took me off to the side one day and says, Bruce, do what's in front of you and get it done. This is what we have to do right now. Let's get this done. Worry about all the other shit later. Um, and I think that kind of sticks right up there. He and, he and Gorilla Monsoon both helped me so much in that way.
1: Charlie wants to know, did Gene regret going to WCW?
0: I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. You know, hell, he had a good run there. I don't think so at all. Sean wants to know, what was Gene's drink of choice? Vodka martini.
1: Um, Robert wants to know, whose idea was it for him to always wear a tuxedo in the WWF?
0: That was just something that Vince always did early on. He wanted all of his uh, announcers and commentators to stand out and wear tuxes, be classy.
1: Devin wants to know, did they ever consider giving Gene a Piper's Pit style show?
0: No, that wasn't Gene's role. He was, Gene was the, the neutral guy. That wouldn't have worked.
1: Jay wants to know, did Bruce ever have a mean Gene burger?
0: Can't say I ever had the pleasure of having a mean Gene burger.
1: Ryan wants to know, nothing salacious or scandalous, but any funny mean Gene party stories? I got to tell you, it does feel like mean Gene would be the best guy ever to have at a party.
0: Well, he is. And and he was the life of the party. And like I said, you know, I think that the fun times, I don't know how funny it was, but Gene always was the life of the party, whether he was telling jokes or whether he was at the end of the piano singing and that, that was who Gene Okerlund was. Um, just a lot of fun.
1: Last question here. This one's from Robert Collins. What was Gene Okerlund like in real life?
0: What you see is what you get in many respects. Um, but he could also be very, very reflective. One of the nicest guys that I've ever had the pleasure of working with one of the most talented individuals ever in the business, because I, I just had confidence in him and I trusted him as well. And he never let me down in that regard. So, um, I so to sum it all up, he was a good father and, he was just a really, really good man. And there, there's not a lot of that out there. And I think that Gene fits in that category.
1: Without question, the greatest to ever do it, the best that ever did it, me and Gene Okerland. You'll be missed. Um, we appreciate you guys taking time to join us here on the show and celebrate the life and times of the great Gene Okerland And hope you'll be back next week when we're back to our regularly scheduled programming We'll hit Royal Rumble 1999 next week. Uh, but in the meantime, let's uh, let's relive some more Mean Gene memories. And uh, we'll post some videos on YouTube and Facebook and everywhere we can to celebrate the great life of Mean Gene Elferlin. We'll see you next week right here at Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard.
0: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together,